So then, if you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. Inspiring conversations all across the universe. Across the universe? That's right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lance Fever Myers. And I'm LB Dio. Please check out our website. It is pov-publishing.com. There you can read essays, comics, poetry, all kinds of stuff. You can see all the links to our previous podcasts. You can also follow the links that you see there to Amazon where you can buy my book. And the title is Why So Much? You can also buy... What else, LB? You can buy your other book. <laughs> That's right. Attack of the Christmas Clones. Right. Clash of the Christmas Clash, Clones. I beg yes. your pardon. Clash. Clash of the Christmas Clones. Go buy that. It's it's perfect for uh, the upcoming holidays. And you can also buy my book, last and least, The Goddamn Fool. Hell yeah. So LB go do it. Video. What are you waiting for? Yeah. What are you waiting for? So what do we have today? We have well, another podcast about another book. Yet another book. It's getting a little ridiculous. <laughs> uh, uh, we're very fortunate to have Miss Kelly Bland on the show, and Hello, she is Kelly. here to discuss no other uh, masterpiece than Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm really glad, glad you chose this book. I, I had never read it. I'm embarrassed to say I'd never read it, and I had always wondered what the hell that title means, and now I know, <laughs> so thank you. Oh, well, you are very <laughs> welcome. Um, like I said, I was looking at a bunch of different books to try to pick which a bunch of different books to pick which one I wanted to um, talk about, and this one was my first choice. So I'm happy to talk about it today. Excellent. Well, what is it about the book that makes it such a choice for you? Um, well, um, I feel like where um, whenever I read it at the time, um, mm -hmm. it was uh, a kind of pivotal book for me to read at the, the period of time I was in in my life. Um, so uh, and uh, it's kind of, you know, it's beautiful. It's a little romantic. Um, and that was kind of what my life felt like at the time. And I was living in Europe at the time. Oh. And so it um, all of it just felt very, you know, um, on point. And uh, just in terms of thinking about where I was and about uh, other people's perspectives and um uh, the problem of language. I don't know. Just all of it was uh, where I read it and I just felt like, you know, a ding went off in my head. So fantastic. Yeah. Well, tell the readers why that why, why a book like this would would resonate with someone living in Europe. Oh, well, it is set in Europe in uh, Czechoslovakia uh, in 1968. And it takes place between the Prague Spring and uh, I think the Russian occupation um, there. Um, I'm not as familiar exactly with the historical events mm. other than what I skimmed back over when I was looking through the book. Um, well, a lot of it happens after the Russian yeah, occupation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's set there and, um, they, they go to uh, different other places in there, moved to Paris and around. And so it's just like, you know, descriptions of beautiful places and art and, and it's about a bunch of, you know, it's about an artist and a doctor and a professor and a photographer. So it's all of these. And a dog. And a dog. Yes. <laughs> a very sweet dog. A charmingly named dog. Yes. Karenin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After the husband of Anna Karenina. 
Right. Even though it's a female dog. It's a female dog. <laughs> <laughs> With a, what, St. Bernard's face? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the, uh, the author, Milan Kundera, uh, I believe he's no longer with us. Isn't that right? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't no. think he I is. I could Google it. Yes, we could Google it, but we're going to let the audience at home Google it. <laughs> uh, interesting character. He, he fled from Czechoslovakia and became a uh, French citizen, I guess. And interestingly, he declared that he was now a French author and that he wanted to be listed as such, put in the French literature section of bookstores and so forth. Yeah, um, I, I feel like the the journey of the artist Sabina, her character, um, I think a lot of the stuff that she talks about is like him talking about mm. what he believes. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, in, later in the book, at one point she, she goes to uh, California, I think. Mm. Um, and... Um, yeah, she tries to not even like tell people that she's Czech. I, I, is what I remember of it. So interesting. Yeah. So I think there might be something there. Well, a lot of our audience who haven't read the book may have be familiar with it through the movie, which came out in the eighties. It had uh, Daniel Day Lewis, Juliette Binoche, and uh, who was the woman who played Sabina? That was on, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, well, I never saw the movie. I haven't either. Is it is it close to the book? Does it? I would. Say, I don't remember liking the movie that much. Honestly, mm. uh, I think that it it had its points. It was a little more overtly sexy than the book. It, mm. Even though the book is very very concerned with sex, I don't yeah. think of it as a as a particularly erotic book. Yeah. Uh, I mean it 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 is in a way, but it's certainly not. Um, it's not a steamy, like yeah, descriptive steamy, kind of right, thing. It's right. it's just it, that plays a big role in in the characters' lives. And so the movie is very steamy. Then yeah, the movie <laughs> has these sexy scenes, oh, one mm -hmm. after the other, sure, and which makes sense because the book is about what a uh, a, a womanizing husband mm -hmm. who has dozens and dozens of mistresses, his uh, wife, who is ultimately driven to her own infidelities. Um, and then Sabina, who is, you know, very, uh, very sexual herself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to watch the movie um, as, you know, research for coming in, but then I saw it was two hours and 52 minutes. So <laughs> I said, you know what? I'm, I'm all right. Yes. <laughs> well, before you showed up, uh, we were talking about, um, LB and I were talking about the, the language. I had mentioned that I liked the plain the plain language, the very straightforward um, writing style of this mm -hmm. book. Um, but it also occurred to me that a lot of times you get that when, when it's a, you know, when it's written in a foreign language and I don't know how much of that comes from having been translated. So what was, mm -hmm. what's the original language? Is it, is it Czech? Was it written in Czech? Or was it written it in French? It was written in Czech, but it's first or no, it, it, he wrote it in French. I think oh, he did? it came out in French first. And then two years later, a Czech version came okay. out, but maybe he wrote it in Czech and then translated it. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Well, it, reminded, it made me think of, uh, I had read uh, that Mirakami, you know, wrote in English specifically to get that very plain forward spoken sort of uh, sound and feel because he had such a limited vocabulary in English. So oh, I was wondering uh -huh. if like, so if, if French is his second language, 
I wonder if that had some effect right. on the yeah. way it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's totally possible. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think a little bit of the the bald soprano. Um, uh, he wrote that play. Um, well, he I don't know why I can't, I'm like blanked on the the playwright um but uh ionesco the bald uh-huh. soprano um and he wrote it in french and it wasn't his first language he was mm. writing about the absurdity of language and he thought it was a tragedy and everyone thought it was a comedy <laughs> <laughs> yeah well also uh beckett wrote waiting for godot in french so that's must have been a fashionable thing to do at the time. Well, it was a fashionable thing to do to go to France. It know? certainly is. Yeah. It certainly is. I've got to learn a different language so I can write another book. Yes. <laughs> it's about time. Well, you, you've got two out right now. Let's <laughs> slow down, my God. Well, uh, I think that the structure of the book does, uh, it lends itself towards me as a reader. Like, I like reading short fiction and I will read poetry and um, the 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 chapters for this book are really short right, and yes. very concise ideas yes. are relayed to you so you can just read one bit and it right. can mean something you know yes. which i really appreciated about the book it made it very easy to read well, it I takes thought. such a, a a real talent and skill to to capture really deep really meaningful passages that are original feeling and sounding without having to resort to a thesaurus, right? Without, yeah. I mean, to have <laughs> yeah. it like the really, really straightforward descriptions and language uh, to, to build such really deep and beautiful sentiments, right? I think so. I think so. Um, I think a lot about um, uh, the, the sections where he's talking about what one word means or what words mean mm. to the characters mm-hmm. and how mm. they view things differently. And I remember that being like a Oh yeah, you know what? What I think love is is different than what someone else right. thinks love is, or trust, or even just lightness and darkness. You know, yeah. like so. I I thought that was I, it just blew my mind. I, I was not really thinking uh-huh. about other people. I guess you know <laughs> when you're young. And <laughs> well, it's a very uh, a very important concept in the 20th century philosophy of uh, this idea that words are a barrier to understanding. Uh, each other as individual people, but also in terms of any ideas mm. that the, the, the communication of ideas is very difficult or even impossible because words have so many meanings. Some people have proposed a philosophical language where every word can only have one meaning and so forth. We imagine that would be a very difficult challenge to uh, <laughs> to learn that to enforce <laughs> to get people <laughs> to, to enforce, learn it and, right. and have yeah. conversations well and then people will take a couple of words and make a phrase and then it becomes then the word means something right, else right, right. It's, right. Like, exactly. it's like that's like saying we've got to ban poetry well like it's, for like you know constructive or at least for the purposes of, <laughs> yeah of right philosophical conversations but this is speaking of philosophy one of the more straightforwardly or or, or should i say uh nakedly philosophical books. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, there is a lot of great philosophical novels in the 20th century, thinking of like the existentialists and Sartre and Camus, mm-hmm. but, uh, but none of them just come out and on the first page and say, okay, this is what this book is about. It's about a philosophy. I'm, I'm referring to a concept that was introduced by Nietzsche and blah, right. blah, blah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then there's this, this, this tone going through the entire book where, you have these characters in intense emotional situations 
but the author will step back and say, now let's talk about what all this means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I like. You yes. know, um, I... Uh, because I'm not a person that has, um, you know, studied philosophy, you know, if anything at all, you know, I've like, there's some of it reading little books here and there trying to get it and being mm. like, Oh, I don't know. And then, and then I started having a feeling where I'm like, I don't know if I trust philosophers. I don't, you know, like <laughs> good idea. I, I dated a few philosophy majors <laughs> and I was like, they're just justifying <laughs> whatever action they want for. But, um, but uh, what, I, what I enjoyed about the book was that it did just say, I mean, it almost feels a little bit like a very, you know, artsy thesis uh, paper mm. in a way, which I, I feel like I really liked the illustrations of, you know, the, what was going on with the characters then relates back to the point he's trying to make. Like I, I enjoyed that. I remember reading some reviews about it that just people had written um, crowdsourced reviews and they were just, they felt like they were being talked down to, but I didn't well, mind it. See, I didn't think Let's that. Hope yeah. so. I didn't, <laughs> 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 no, I didn't mind it all either. I, I feel like it's, it's the kind of thing where um, it, it's not trying to be too clever, too smart by hiding the, you know, the metaphors mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, it's like just yeah. trying to say, okay, here's a, a, a philosophy and here's how it's applying to these people and and that's I, I still felt very powerful and very emotional to me when when it was described that way. So mm-hmm. tell us, go ahead and let's let's go ahead and tell the the, the listeners what the the title means. Oh, uh, the, okay, yeah. The um, maybe you can help me with it too because I've I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, the unbearable lightness of being is in reference to well his his thesis about about Nietzsche and about or he was writing he was writing an argument against Nietzsche's idea. Of of eternal recurrence, mm-hmm. which is that mm-hmm. um, everything is doomed to happen over and over again. Is, yes. that, is that a correct way of putting it? That, that is absolutely okay. correct. The, uh, the doctrine of eternal recurrence where you have to live your life over and over infinitely and it can never change in any way. Yeah. Um, and he is saying, I guess, uh, well, I mean, I think he's saying, I guess, that... Um, that uh, there's also uh, the the phrase he uses einmal is keimal, which means uh, oh, what does it mean? I, sh- I should have taken notes. <laughs> <laughs> I should have taken notes. But um, I I mean it, it it's that existentialist idea that uh, what happens it, it, life only happens once. Right. So uh, I yeah, he, mean, he I, he he kind of says, listen, you know, going back to this philosopher, pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides said that. He, he talked about the oppositional aspects of the world, you know, hunger and satiety and, and thirst and whatever. But uh, and he said the weight was bad and lightness was good. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kundera here is taking exception to that idea or, or proposing a counter. Well, well, yeah, but we have to still have yet to tie the idea that if it is eternal, eternally recurring, then that sort of ties everything down. That becomes the, the weight. That yes. becomes the heaviness. It's something yeah. that happens over and over again. It takes on an immense weight. Right. Yes. So when it's, when, when life, uh, if life does eternally recur, then all, every action is, is happening infinitely. And that adds weight to um, existence. And so if it, but if it only happens once and you only live through these things one time, then they're terribly light. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was so beautifully described when he's um, at the very beginning trying to make a decision and he can't 
decide what to do. Yeah. And it's because this is all just a sketch. This is all just, there's no, um, there's, there's no building up to this. There's no learning from it. It only happens once and there's no practice for it. Yeah. There's no way to know where you, whether there's, you've made the right decision. Right. Or whether you're going to. You have no past yeah, occurrences right. to pull from to yeah. help you make your decision. And the lightness of, of the living once is unbearable because it's, it, it, you don't know what to do. It's, it's too light. It's too, I don't know. Am I describing this properly? Help us out. I mean, I think, um, I will, I remember whenever, well, I, I had a, a boyfriend at the time. It was my, it was my overseas boyfriend. <laughs> he was the one who was like, you have to read the book, you know? Um, as far as I remember, I don't know. My memory's a little fuzzy <laughs> in general, but, um, but I believe that he's the one that told me to read it. And I did. And I read it. Um, and I just remember reading the title and thinking, oh, I know what that feels like. Mm. Uh, you know, like before reading it at all, it was like, Ugh, yeah, um, uh, I, I was also getting into existentialism at the time. Very, mm -hmm. very uh, exciting thought for me. I, I was religious mm -hmm. I, um, growing up of my own choice, um, not my parents. And so um, at one point I left the church and had been kind of, I think, dealing with the idea that I was just going to die and that was going to be it. Yes. You know, right. Um, and also, you know, very angry at God and, you know, all that stuff that mm -hmm. happens, you know, with that kind of experience. So um, living life, uh, existentialism made me feel like, or like, you know, they talk about the existentialist smile, you know, mm. because you, because life is meaningless because there's no reason for anyone to be here. Then there's no reason why not to have a good time. It's kind of what I <laughs> right. took from it, you right. know? Yeah, right. Um, but also, yeah, the idea of like our existence being, I don't know. So there, I, I, I'm not really making sense, but when I read the title, I was like, I, I know what that feels like. And it made me wanted to read it. And it's yeah. kind of in, uh, ironic in a way, too, because we're talking about these people who are tormented by the lightness of their existence. And yet the political background of the story is, I can only describe it as extremely heavy. I mean, there are literally tanks rolling into their country and the country is being taken over by the secret police. And we don't think of these kinds of things as light normally. No. Well, and their their human dramas, uh, in contrast, seem very much more important. I don't know in general than right the way it's described in the book. That's yeah. There's it's still their interpersonal relationships that take the spotlight. Yeah, and, and it's the, just yeah. there in the background. The things are like in the back, except yeah. for except for Teresa, right? She she's a photographer. She's right. a war photographer. Yes. Uh, but but in but even in those sections, they talk about she talks about her great joy. And right, she's so excited. Very, doesn't yeah. happy she's ever been. Yeah, <laughs> well, going and taking it makes that's right. There, your life is too light and you finally find something heavy to mm. attach yourself to. Right. In this case, a terrible, tragic, horrible event, but nevertheless, something that you can go out and sink your teeth into. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> and uh, Tomas has a, a very serious situation on his hands because he also, another instance of the philosophical in this work, mm -hmm. is his... Uh, paper that he writes or his letter to the editor right. uh, about communism. Yeah, he, he, he got in trouble or I can't, I can't remember the, the ending of the book is more fuzzy for me. Yeah, well, he uh, he he writes a book, a, a book, he writes a letter to the editor of a newspaper 
in which he compares the communists to, or, or certain communists, the, the ones who, who seemed to be more innocent because they honestly believed that they were going to create a paradise on earth and so it was worth killing all the people they killed. And he compares them to Oedipus, who discovers that through no fault of his own, he has slept with his mother and killed his father. And that the Oedipus reaction to this was just not to say, well, it's not my fault, but rather to put out his own eyes. Uh, and and that, that there's a certain dramatic logic to that. And he says, well, why shouldn't the communists who really legitimately believed they were doing a good thing, why shouldn't they also put their eyes out in the same way? <laughs> right. And yep. the secret police doesn't think that that's the most uh, <laughs> compelling argument they've ever heard. Right. right. Fighting word. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been uh, uh, a fantastic experience uh, coming across this book. Thank you for, for recommending it to us. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, um, it's, it, it was really quite a joy. So, um, so the book was written in 82. It was published, what, two years later? Yeah, in 84. When did you first read it? I believe that I had read it, oh, see, so I was in Europe, so it would have been 2004 um, okay. that I read it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I remember reading it and then reading 100 Years of Solitude, like right oh, yeah. after, oh, yeah. one right after the other. Right. Both very important books for me. Um, yeah, yeah, it was around then. I, I was, uh, I, I went to school in East Texas to a college in East Texas, got my theater degree from Stephen F. Austin State University. And we, have, uh, or the school has a, a connection with a conservatory in England, um, in this, uh, in Kent County, um, this place called Sid Cup that everybody called Shit Cup, but um, <laughs> it was a very cool school. And um, they had a program called the European Theater Arts Program. I joined the second year of that program, um, and it was all studying experimental theater, physical theater. Um, and I had never left home before. I had never flown on a plane before. I was pretty poor. So um, going to live in London, and then later I, I studied in Barcelona, um, it was like hugely eye-opening, and uh, I it was so exciting. And uh, Teresa's journey uh is the one that well I feel a little bit like I've I understand I I I can put myself in the shoes of each of those characters or I have Mm. been each of those characters at different points in my life and um her like leaving her home and moving you know and uh taking in a new world like all of that was very uh, prevalent to me at the time. Yes. Yeah, so Teresa is a, is from a very sm- small town. Is that right? Yeah. She's a very small town. But she's at a the very same time, mother. she's never been to the country at, at some point. That's it. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess she's, in, she's from like a suburb, but at some point they yeah. talk about going to the country and he says, she's never been to the country. I don't know why I found that very arresting. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's so when I read it, it was like, Oh, you know, mind blown. So exciting. Look at all this beauty everywhere. I'm yes. reading these beautiful books and I'm, studying cool stuff and so yeah it was a very exciting point in my life yeah yeah what did you think of Tomas the womanizing philandering husband who seems to me to come off as very sympathetic despite his actions but I wonder what you all think of that yeah well I mean 
There is something where like there's this kind of ambiguous morality around the mm-hmm. book, I feel like. So you start just, you know, something that I would maybe hear about on the news or whatever might piss me off more than, um, <laughs> you know, than reading it in this beautiful book. Right. I, I remember thinking about it whenever I was kind of going through it before this and uh, it, it irritated me more. But there's something that is very like, well, this is just how I am. I just, mm. I need to, you know, not be faithful and this is where I'm at. But, but doesn't it, towards the end, doesn't it, he finds happiness or comfort with yes, her? Yes. He does, like, uh, whatever his restlessness, it goes away. So maybe that, maybe that excuses it for me. I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, the, for me, it felt a little weird. And I, I wondered why he included this aspect of Tomas's character was that he has a child. Um, and at the beginning it talks about how he, so we, I guess what was he, was he married to the mother at one point? Uh, yes. I yeah, okay. Think so. And, uh, then when she, so he, yeah, that's right. Because when they get divorced, he has to contribute a third of his income mm-hmm. to, to raising the child and, and, but he's only allowed to see it every other weekend. And then, uh, and the mother keeps making excuses not to let him see the child. Mm-hmm. And at one point he just writes it all off. He's like, screw this. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, he's, yeah. He's just done. And, right. And yeah, his parents yeah. get like really angry with him and, and, and they cut him off because they're like, if you're not going to talk to your child, we're not going to talk to our child. Yeah. And it's like, so in one decision he like alienates an entire side of his family Just abandons and that's yeah. it right that's and, and he's and sort of happy right yeah, yeah, no, yeah he's, exactly. he's like oh that's what that's <laughs> what i wanted to do like right. i just right yeah yeah he abandoned his family which franz later does exactly the same thing yeah mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. leaves his wife and at, for a brief time at least he experiences a great sense of Relief. Lightness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're all gone. All these people that he'd been feeling so He's guilty like, oh, for. All that stuff I, I cared about. I guess I didn't care about it that much. Yeah. But it's really striking because it's not. It's not like a a, a book about Tomas and his sexual adventures. And isn't that fun? It's a book about Tomas and Teresa. And Teresa is suffering horrifically. Yeah. As yeah. a result of these things, and yet you don't hate. Tomas for doing it somehow, or at least I, I felt like I didn't. Well, yeah. you, just to hear you talk about it and you say his sexual adventures, but it didn't seem to me like they were written as though they were sexual adventures, uh, more just like, oh, this is what I do. This is how, what I like to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't make any apologies for it. And it's not like it didn't feel like adventures more than just like, or like he was like being really sneaky. Yeah. Or, it's yeah, like, yeah. Eh, just do this. And, well, and he does lie about it though at first. He does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he but does. he has this kind of like his own personal take on it is like, these are like erotic friendships. Yeah. Right. And yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't want to be cheated on. Um, uh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I feel like Teresa's pain is, is palpable and it, I feel for her when I read her, you know, and she's having these awful dreams, you know, like they have all these dreams where he's like, there's like women at a pool and he's like just shooting them. Yeah. Yes. Tomas is shooting them and she's there. Uh, They're all singing. They have to sing really loud. I don't know. That also has to do, I guess, with like conformity and other stuff. But like, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's funny. Why don't I hate him? <laughs> <laughs> that means he did a good job, I guess. Yes, he writing did a good job. Well, yeah, I guess we identify with him, I guess. And that's the bottom line. We we see where he's coming from. We we feel his perspective when when he's the person we're 
examining at any given yeah. point. Yeah. Um, I feel like uh, I think the my least favorite character in the book. Can we talk about that? My least yeah. favorite <laughs> character in the book is is Franz. I just, uh-huh. I just don't I just don't really like him. And I think I see him the way Sabina sees him, like mm. his, her his lover. Like she looks at him and she pities him, or yes. she, you know. So then I just pity him too. I'm mm. like, right. I don't. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's and funny <laughs> because he's he's a brilliant scholar with a fantastic reputation. He's got a beautiful body. He's this very muscular, strong mm-hmm. man. And yet the way she looks at him is just like, this guy is <laughs> such a sucker. He's just such a loser. And she's yeah. like, I can't, I can't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wonder, you know, um, if back to Tomas, as far as the, his infidelities and, and his whole like attitude about, you know, like relationships goes, I wonder if that makes us see his relationship with Teresa like even more powerfully because he's talking about like, he can't even sleep next to a woman. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. like, he just, he can't do it and, and uh, he'll kick them out or he'll drive them home or he'll, um, you know, always makes an excuse not to, to sleep side by side. But then with Teresa, he's like, he, he loves it. Yeah, and, and he has to redefine. Like, yeah, oh, well, he, I guess he love- declares that love is is not about sex at all, mm-hmm. and, but it's entirely about sleeping next to someone. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and he goes and he leaves her, right? Does oh, he, yeah. He leaves her, and then he comes back. And I think, well, I mean, their relationship for me, I guess, uh, is like uh, they weathered all of this time Mm -hmm. to get to the point where they are comfortable and happy, satisfied with where they're at. They had to go through all of this turmoil to get to a place. Um, And I don't know, is is that also supposed to be like a metaphor for the political things that are happening in there too? Or is it in opposition (laughs) to, I don't know. No, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, I mean, do you... I don't know the answer. When we live in a world where we have uh, the Soviet Union coming in and and as he says, he says very interesting line in there. He says... uh, that the Soviet Union has come and tr- transformed life in Czechoslovakia, perhaps for se- perhaps for centuries. Of course, we in retrospect know that it's only going to be about another twenty years, mm, and then yeah. it's all going to fall down. But that there's that weight again, right? Right. This uh, this Ill- irreversible uh, seeming development that is affecting them so profoundly. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, kind of an interesting. I mean, I, the when they do come in and take over and they take the is it the, the president? president? Mm-hmm. Yeah, into some like labor camp for a little while. And when he comes back, he addresses the people on the radio, and he's like, "Yeah, they do mock executions of the president." Oh, they, and uh, yeah, and so when he comes back, there's a beautiful line right where it says that he they force him to do a speech where he mm-hmm. s- says he loves the Soviet Union. He's so glad oh, that right. they yeah, yeah. took over. And he says, uh, it says that at certain points he'll take pauses in a single sentence of up to 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. Cause yeah. He's, he's like, like oh my there was God. some, there was some word that he used or some, some description about how, uh, it, something about the, the effect. I'm, I've totally lost it, but it, <laughs> I, I remember being impressed by the description and it, it did have to do with him giving the speech and having, and stuttering through it yeah. and feeling, you know, like, like obviously so affected by 
having spent six weeks or whatever it was being and, tortured or right. being yeah. yeah and then then and then I they talk about I guess it's I guess it's Tomas, they talk about uh, about how pitiful he sounds and mm-hmm. how yes, it's like yes. heartbreaking He's to so listen weak. to him be so weak. Yeah, and then and then Teresa though she she finds that she finds that she's identifying with his weakness in a way that she suddenly doesn't disdain his weakness. You know, it's interesting. I guess you could, in a way, you could think of this book as a as the story of people and an author creating the story uh, who are too. Sophisticated, too artistic, too intelligent to care all that much about politics and are forced to mm. talk about politics. Right. And that's almost mm. the, the tragedy that they have no choice <laughs> yeah. but to deal with. And they do their best to stay out of all that and to, and to live yeah. their lives and be focused on each other and focused on art and things like that. But they can't really entirely do that. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think I I think I hear, hear thunder, thunder in the distance. <laughs> <laughs> Here it comes. I think that's uh, the lightning around. Oh, my God. Approaching okay. quickly. Yes, it seems okay. to be rolling in. The, 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 the sky is getting dark. Kelly? Yes. How do you feel? Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Tell us about the first time you fell in love with the book. First time I fell in love with the book was Harriet the Spy. Uh-huh. My third grade teacher, um, as a gift that year, I'd read a lot of books that year, and she gave me that book um, as like a present at the end of the year. And oh, I remember nice. I read it like a few different you times. I loved it. I loved it. She was so sneaky. She was like taking notes all the time and, and I tried to keep a journal but I really I'm not good at keeping a journal oh, that's um, hard yeah you wanted to be a spy I know I was like oh yeah I just uh, I remember loving that book fantastic yeah, yeah has the book ever changed your mind about anything it's hard to say. I, I feel like changing my perspective is probably a better way of putting it. I mean, I, I think this book is one of those books. Um, Unbearable Lightness of Being is one of those books. Um, uh, hmm. Changed my mind. I mean, I, like I said, I was religious when I was younger and I, hmm. I read the Bible a lot. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I had was continuously changing my mind, you know, over time. Yeah. So I probably... That one, maybe. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, has a book ever changed your life then? Um, uh, well, if I, I, I was thinking about this because um, that's always really hard. Um, I feel like there are movies and there are artworks um, uh, that have, you know, changed my life. But probably I probably the single most important piece of writing I ever that, that did something to me that changed the way my life went was... Uh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, my yeah. grandmother. My grandmother had a laser disc <laughs> of the Zeffirelli version mm-hmm. of Romeo and Juliet, and I watched it every time I went over to her house as, as often as I could. I loved it, and I, I was in third grade uh, around the time Harriet of the Spy too. Mm-hmm. Around that same time, yeah. Um, I went to the library and I got you know the I got all the plates and I brought it and I tried to read it while I watched the movie. Wow. I was like reading it at the same wow. time trying to understand what they were saying. Yeah. yeah. Um and I mean and then, you know, I went on to do theater and went on to you okay. know, be here today. There you go. Yeah. Great yeah. answer. 
All right. Uh, has a book ever made you cry? Oh, yeah. I mean, I cry, like, very easily. <laughs> Chewing gum wrapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I cry a, a lot. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this book, 100 Years of Solitude, like, Shakespeare's plays, poems. I mean, uh, like I said, I get, I get very touched Has very a book easily. ever not made you cry? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sure I read a lot of R.L. Stein books. I'm sure none of them made okay. me cry. Uh, well, I think you've already answered this, but tell us a book that you've read more than once. Um, well, I, uh, now I've read this book more Lovely. than once. Um, I, I, I did read Harriet the Spy a lot. Um, th like I said, I read the Bible quite a bit. Um, uh, Shakespeare's plays, I had read um, some of them over and over again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to go back to books after I read them. But, um, but yeah, you know, I would say probably movies I watch over and over a lot mm -hmm. more than mm -hmm. books. But right. yeah. Okay, well, here comes the big one. Uh, do you have any poetry committed to memory? Okay, right. I've been thinking about this one the most. Yeah. Um, because I I used to memorize poems all the time when I was oh. when I was younger. I loved memorizing poems. It was like I was totally into Poe, and I memorized. I remember memorizing the bells because oh, I yes. thought it was such a funny poem to memorize. Plus, every other word is bells. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just have to remember. Did I say bells eight times? <laughs> um. So yeah, I used to know a lot of poems. Um. But I, you know, if I'm trying to think of what I can remember, uh, it would be Shakespeare. Um, and, uh, it is, uh, it is, uh, tomorrow when tomorrow, when tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day until the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have but lit the way to dusty death. That's not exactly right. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard of no more. Beautiful. 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 It was close. Not one <laughs> word perfect, but close. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> you improved it. That is fantastic. You have joined the, the, the ranks of, of those who have given us poetry, and I love it. I love it. <laughs> Kelly Bland, what can we say except thank you so much for introducing both of us to this book that oh. neither of us had read. And, oh, wow. Uh, I just assumed like everybody had read it. Well, so I funny. should have read it, by, but you, you've caught me up to speed. I love oh, it. Oh, good, yeah. good. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. Oh, this what a treat. fun. Thank you for joining us. Well, we are POV, right? We are per uh, Persistence Division Publishing. So go to our website. It is pov-publishing.com. There you can read comics, essays, poetry, all that stuff. You can see links to other podcasts that we've done with other guests talking about other cool books. What else? It's just cool. It's just know? cool, it's man. Cool. Just go. Go there. Buy our books. Read them. Buy, buy several copies. Yeah, what Christmas are you is for? coming up. Come on now. Get on with it. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly Bland. Thank you, Kelly. Thank, Thank you, you. For, to the listeners. And uh, we'll Thank see you, you next ladies time. and gentlemen. Bye-bye. Adios.